great. Um, please excuse this. I'm going for my kind of isolated, shipwrecked look, so that's, that's why I am ever so slightly less clean-shaven than I normally am. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to engage with God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the way you reveal yourself to us through it. We pray you open it to our hearts now, and we pray that you open up our hearts to what you have to say in your Word. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, you may remember, or perhaps I should just recap about Ephesians chapter 3, because this chapter rolls on, obviously, from one point to the next. Um, Paul kind of began with a bit of a false start at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3. He begins, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, and then kind of stops and expands on the reason he is calling himself a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. He has a mission from God to reveal to the Gentiles what God has already revealed to the Jews, and particularly to him, that God's plan through Jesus is unfolding not just for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. The fact that it's unfolding for the Jewish people was a given. They were the sons of Abraham. Um, They'd been promised a Messiah from the line of David, and they got him. But Jesus died for the Gentiles too, and they've become heirs together with Israel. And so Paul is being imprisoned for the noblest reason he can imagine, and he says they shouldn't be discouraged on his behalf. He's right where he needs to be. And so this is the passage we're looking at. This is where um, Paul returns to his previous thought. It begins verses 14 and 15. For this reason, as he began previously, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So what does that mean? Well, for all of Paul's life, he's been praying to the God of his fathers. He's been praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the tradition of the Jewish people. His people are named Israel. They're the Israelites. It's the name that God gave to Jacob when he wrestled with God. The Israelites are literally called by the name God gave them. The Jewish identity, their name, who they are is derived from the things that God has done for that people. He led them out of Egypt. He established them in the promised land. drew them out of that promised land and into exile, back again, and then with Roman boots on their back. But now Paul is reiterating this revealed mystery, which is plainly visible now, if you read back through the Old Testament, that the Jews were God's chosen people precisely because they were meant to be a pathway through which the rest of the world could know God. And that was fulfilled in Jesus. The truth of God is that he is not just the God of the Jews, not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not only the God who led the Jews out of Egypt, but also the God of the Egyptians themselves, whose relationship with God has been turbulent, to say the least, but who would go on after the uh, life and death and resurrection of Christ to become one of the great centers of Christianity in the ancient world. And even now, uh, today, after more than a thousand years of religious conquest and uh, repression and reconquest and incorporation of the Muslim empire and then schisms in that empire, there are still in Egypt some 20 million Egyptian Christians who are praising God, the same God that we are right now. Some literally right now because it's about 10 a.m. on Sunday there. And Orthodox services tend to run long. Now we've been looking at um, Exodus in the morning services And uh, we know that God does not seem in the Bible to paint the Egyptians in a terribly flattering light most of the time. But 
The Egyptians had been on a national, or have been on a national journey of highs and lows, just like the Jews, in which they've struggled to come to know God, who ultimately reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Just like, for example, the modern nation of Australia. And there is a discussion to be had about whether or not our nation is a Christian nation or a post-Christian nation or a never-quite-was-a-Christian nation. But whichever of those is true, we are a nation that draws its roots from Adam and from Adam back to God. And so when Paul says to the Ephesians, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven, those deceased and those on earth, those alive, derives its name, He is basking in this blessing which God has poured out on Christians, and particularly on Paul more than anyone else in history. More than anyone else in history, more than any mere mortal in history, Paul gets to be the one who calls the nations of the world together to unite under the Father God. So no wonder he's so happy. Now 16 through 19 is the thing that... um, Oops, I'm kind of a couple of slides behind. 16 through 19 is the, uh, the bit that Paul is praying for. Um, and it sounds like a bunch of things bundled up together, but when you unwind it, it's really one thing. He is praying that they will be full of the power to know God's love. And it reads, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is kind of a, kind of a weird statement. First, he asks that God draw upon his glorious riches. And riches is a term that Paul uses a lot in Ephesians. It's come up five times in the last three chapters. Obviously, we're not talking about riches in the sense of a Scrooge McDuck money bin full of physical riches. This is an expression of grace, of overflowing grace, of plentiful, boundless, borderless grace, and not just grace as a technical reference for the fact that God forgives. As if it's a mechanical tool that was right for the job and then God puts it back on the shelf when it's done. Grace as this embodied, in motion, dynamic love that is the beating heart of God. And God's grace is rich. It is rich like a chocolate cake so dark that light cannot escape its surface. It is rich like a kingdom whose streets are paved with gold. God's grace is so rich that when he bundled himself up in human form and walked the earth as Jesus Christ, corrupt humans Jews and Gentiles conspired to torture and kill him and succeeded, but that grace is so rich that not only was humanity not immediately scorched from the face of the earth for the temerity of even thinking about such a thing, not only were we not killed, death died. And then the gates of heaven burst open and the Spirit of God fell on those who would call on his name and the world began to know God in a way which Adam would have been jealous of. That's rich. Those are some glorious riches. And that's why Paul prays that the Ephesians are strengthened with power through the Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts, in our hearts, in your hearts, through faith. He talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts, not like a fancy, pleasant visitation of a, of a very nice Christ to have around. It sounds more like nuclear containment. 
It's like the Holy Spirit would come into your heart, into your inner being to prepare you to become a vessel for the love of God and take one look and decide, no, this is all well and good to be redeemed, but if the power that ignited the stars and invented time and cracked the gates of hell is going to be housed in here, it's going to be, need to be a little sturdier than this. Because that's what we are looking at here. God spent all the Old Testament reminding his people he is not small and not undangerous. He is overflowing with power and holiness in his depictions in the Old Testament, particularly when the Israelites are wandering around with the Ark of the Covenant. You might recall they have to carry it on these long poles so no one has to touch it directly and no one's allowed to um, get particularly close to it. And there's that story where the, one of the priests carrying it trips and some hapless mook puts out his hand to try and steady it for them, well-meaningly enough, but ignorantly, and dies on the spot for doing this. Then the Israelites build a huge temple to house this ark in which they can see there is the presence of God. And so they have the ark, and then they have a wall. And only the high priest goes in there, and then there's another wall, and only some people can go in there, and another wall, and then another wall. And only then is this presence safely housed. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are fortified so that that power can be embedded in your soul. And the very fact that people as persistently flawed as you and I can be a dwelling place of God without exploding is a miracle on par with being raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it explicitly, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. Now that passage in Corinthians is concerned with keeping that temple undefiled, but this passage in Ephesians is begging the readers, begging the Ephesians and now us, to grapple with and know how powerfully blessed and equipped we are to do God's work once he has empowered you to do so. So once Paul has prayed that Christ indwells their hearts through faith, he goes on to pray that being rooted in and established in love, that now they've gotten this taste of this love, that they may have the power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And secondly, to know that not even that knowledge is sufficient to exhaust the measurement of God's love. He prays that God gives them the insight to imagine the possibilities of God's love at the farthest edges of their perception and the wisdom to know that even that is not the end. God's love is like the horizon. You can perceive it as distant and sprawling, but as the world curves out of your line of sight, there is just more and more there, and you can never go beyond it. God's love is beyond imagining and beyond measurement, and he accomplishes the work of his love, first through Jesus, and then through Jesus, through people, which is exactly how he finishes the prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's mid-Ephesians prayer. The cry of his soul is that God's people would understand first that Jesus' suffering was an expression of God's boundless love for them, and that Paul in prison is suffering as an expression of God's boundless love for them, and not to be discouraged by this, because their task 
will now be to be an expression of God's love for others in the world, and that will certainly require some suffering. Now, some of the Ephesians may have objected that that may hurt. I don't know if I can take that. I don't know if my faith can withstand that. Paul's preemptive answer is that, of course, you can take it. God can and routinely does do things that are beyond imagination and measurement. That's how you know it's God doing it. It's his favorite thing to do. And you can do incredible things which you think are beyond your capacity because Christ is living, in some sense at least, in your heart. And everything in creation yields to his power. So there's a lot in these verses. There's a a kind of a passing of the torch from Paul as a Jew to the Gentiles, inviting them into this family of God and the responsibility of bringing the gospel to the world just as the Jews have been required to bear God's name in the past. There's this prayer for spiritual fortification to become a worthy vessel for Christ's indwelling. And there is a prayer for recognition of just how awesome God's love is. Now, we've already talked about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together, and if there's one thing that um, I certainly believe Australian Christians get, it's the sense that all people groups are desired by God and need to hear his message. As a nation, Australia is like the historical high watermark for defeating racism, and Aussie Christians get to carry that in their faith. We get that part. But we've also talked a bit about how God's power is what we're bestowed with in our soul, but we should think clearly about what we mean by the indwelling of Christ, about Christ coming to dwell in our hearts. Because that's the kind of expression and and phrase that can get smoothed pretty bland and meaningless by innumerable readings of Scripture and not interrogating deeply. So what do we mean by God dwelling in us or indwelling in us or coming to dwell in us? And which part of God specifically comes to dwell in us? If we did a quiz... We said, is it the Father? Is it the Son? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it some combination thereof? I'm not sure we might be immediately confident to supply the answer. The truth is we have to carefully define our terms here. What does indwelling mean? Because if you said that my friend has um, moved to Mount Isa and and is presently indwelling there, or is there presently indwelling, You would think two things. First, that I have a friend who is physically, locationally moved to Mount Isa and is there opposed to anywhere else. And second, that I am rehearsing for a play and weaving strange language into my everyday sentences. But the thing is, God's omnipresent. He is everywhere anyway. And this applies to the Father and the Holy Spirit and indeed the Son, who is physically present in his body in one place, but not limited to that certainly because he is God. But no one's thinking about Jesus coming in some physical sense to dwell in their heart like a divine embolism. So we must be meaning something else. All of God is in the same room as you all the time. So what does scripture mean when it promises that the Holy Spirit will indwell us? And what does Paul mean here when he says that Jesus will come to dwell in our hearts? What's the Holy Spirit who is the one who has the primary role of being spiritually united with us. That's what we mean by presence, that he is acting in a certain place. He is making himself felt in a certain place, impacting the world in a certain place. It's like finding footsteps in a room in a house. In the broadest sense, 
you know that someone was present in that room, but their impact is most precisely felt. They are most present, obviously, where their footprints were. It's where their feet touched the ground. And the Holy Spirit is present in a Christian because he is there impacting their mind, their conscience, their speech, their behavior. During worship, people talk about the Holy Spirit moving when there's a particular sense of him impacting those involved in the worship. He's more present because he is impacting more. And so to have the Holy Spirit indwell us is to have the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives and impacting on our decisions and all the things that make us who we are. Now, this is a little different to what Paul means when he talks about Christ coming to indwell in our hearts, though, because Christ, while God, is not the Holy Spirit, who is also God. This is because the English word for heart is kind of a blurry word. It's, it's rolled up lots of different connotations for heart um, over many, many years. It's the physical organ, your heart pumps blood. Um, it's something that has a, maybe it's the true sense of meaning of something, even if there are distractions, like it's the, the heart of the matter. Um, it means deep affection. If you give someone your heart, you could leave your heart in San Francisco, your heart might just not be in it. And when we read about our heart in a religious setting, it's easy to think of it as just an, a nice, like, deep secret part of us, our pleasant little heart, the place where the things that we like the most just go to be, like a little fond, special house inside us where we put all our dreams. Um, and to the Ephesians reading this, and to Paul write, and writing it, heart meant the place from which the rest of you flows. It's the source of your actions. It's the source of you. You can't leave your heart somewhere or give it away in this sense because your heart is the thing that drives your actions. It's the driver's seat for your decisions. You can't be a believer in your heart and act like someone who doesn't believe. Because the thing is that your heart is where your beliefs are. And it's the thing that's making your actions. So does that make sense? It's the heart is where the belief lives. And that's where you decide how to act. You need to disconnect a little bit from a Western modern biological thought of our brain is where our thinking happens and where our decisions are made. As far as scripture is concerned, your actions pour out of your heart. And they come out of there in the style of the beliefs that you put in there. It's the difference between a wish and a belief. Now, if you want to lose weight, and you keep telling yourself you should eat less junk, but you don't eat less junk, it is fair to say that weight loss is not really in your heart in this sense. You believe in enjoying the food that you like. You just wish it didn't have the natural consequences. Believe me on that. So when Paul prays that Christ may indwell your heart through faith, he is not praying that the Son will supernaturally pull up a chair and try to do the thing that the Spirit is already doing in you. He is indwelling your heart through faith. He is to become the source of our actions. The thing that is most important to us is the thing that is in our heart. Just like the thing that's most important in the temple is the thing in the center of that, in the Holy of Holies. And now that we're a temple, Christ is enshrined within us. You should be able to look at anything you do and then draw a line backwards to the phrase, because I believe in Jesus. And that's a thousand miles away from our heart being a, a nice little place where the, the candle of Jesus burns quietly as a treasure for us to appreciate. 
In Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, Batman Begins, we witness a young Bruce Wayne as he becomes the caped crusader and after acquiring the training and the gadgets and the bat suits and having some early success as the Batman, Bruce is reminded that in order for his identity to remain secret, he needs to maintain a public facade of being a reckless playboy billionaire who could not possibly be a secret crime fighter. But after making a public nuisance of himself, he suddenly encounters a childhood friend and glimmering old flame, Rachel Dawes. She is unimpressed with who he appears to have become. And in aching to tell her the truth, he promises her that all this isn't me. Inside, I am more than this. And she tells him wisely that deep down, he might very well be the boy that she remembers, but it's not who you are underneath that counts. It's what you do that defines you. And in that moment, the truth of his situation is hammered home. He can't both be the kind of man he needs to be to pursue Rachel and also publicly degrade the image of Bruce Wayne for the purpose of his secret identity. He must choose between two things, both of which are precious to him. It's his love for the girl or his desire to be a hero because only one of those things can be the source of his actions. Solomon, not featured in the film, um, has similar pragmatic ideas about the, the source of one's actions flowing from their heart. And this wonderful proverb about leaning on the Lord with all our heart and um, submitting our ways to him. Ways is identical to actions. It's the, go, the way that you go. It is the path you take. When we submit ourselves to God, it means enshrining him in our heart and taking those paths that he would make for us. And following Christ is a daily decision to have our faith as the source of our actions and have that define who we are. It's easiest when we're choosing between following Christ and obvious sin that we are not tempted to do. I am perhaps not compelled to steal cars. It's very easy for me to go to my car after church and not break into one of yours. But it's much harder when choosing between Christ and things that otherwise mean a lot to you. There are families that give up the hope of a simple and normal life by uprooting themselves and living in another country for mission work in obedience to God. There are Christian kids who just don't get to play the sport they want to play because the leagues insist on playing during church hours. And every believer is going to be constantly faced with opportunities to displace the central role of their faith in order to do the thing they otherwise want to do. We call this dying to ourselves daily. But this prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians, we can pray for ourselves, that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us in our inner being so that we can better hold to that faith instead of compromising. And what does it look like to gain that strength? It looks like grasping more and more each day how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, which saved us, which we now bear in the temple of our bodies, which we are now summoned by God into the world to bring to all those who have not heard. And at times which are not often convenient, in ways that we cannot imagine, on a scale that we cannot contemplate, with confidence that comes guaranteed by the maker of the stars, in a manner we and no one else was made to do, 
with the blessed assurance that nothing else we could do in our lives can compare in significance and satisfaction to what God has tasked to us. This is a call to obedience, to keep Christ centered in our hearts. And it's a call to vision, to remove the limits of what we expect God might do with us. And it's a call to action, actions which define us individually and collectively as the people of God. People who take risks for the gospel and make sacrifices for the kingdom because we know that the victory is won and that the riches of heaven have already been poured out on us. So what do you need to do now? Do you need to repent of some way in which you know you are not obeying? Do you feel a spiritual idleness and you're seeking how best to serve the Lord and you require some adjustment of the limitations of your imagination? Or do you need to act? Do you know what you're supposed to do, but you just have to do it? Bring it before the Lord now. The God who saves us to his service, who empowers us with his spirit and welcomes us into his kingdom of boundless grace. Let's pray together. Father God, your scripture tells us that when we turn to Jesus, you save us from sin and death, but that's not all. That your Holy Spirit comes into us and changes us, and Lord, if there is any part of us that is holding us back, it's holding us back from performing your will in our lives in the most courageous way, the most confident way, the most authentic way, we pray, Lord, that you would overcome that with your grace. Drown our fears in the oceans of your love, Lord. We ask for a fortified heart so that we can better resist the temptation to stray from sourcing our actions in obedience to you. And we ask for the ability to grasp how vast your love is and the plans for your love in this world, how great they truly are, and the humility to know that even then, your reach far exceeds our grasp. And we ask, Lord, for the confidence and the courage to act in a way that glorifies you so that every action in our life can be traced back to Jesus as our heart's true desire. Make us that which you would have us be, Lord, however far beyond our imagination it is, because that's what we want to be. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.